The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Out of Office. My guest today is Gigi Chow. Currently serving as the Executive Vice Chairman of Chungnan Holdings, Gigi Chow is a leading businesswoman and LGBTQI activist in Hong Kong. She made international headlines when her tycoon father offered a one billion Hong Kong dollar marriage bounty to any man who would marry her. That didn't work out. Gigi later wrote a poignant open letter to her father in which she wrote, Dear Daddy, you must accept that I am a lesbian. Over the years, Gigi Chow has devoted herself to LGBTQI activism. Her charity, the Faith in Love Foundation, recently launched an app called Voice Out, which allows users to log discrimination of any kind due to race, gender, disability or sexual orientation and connects users to people who can help. She caught up with my colleague Yajo San recently and shared how peering out of her father's gold Rolls Royce in the 80s imbued her with a deep responsibility. Big parts of Hong Kong were still you know, quite poor at the time. Why she wants straight people to become gay people's allies. We are social beings and we have solidarity for each other. And I think the triumph of um, the human race is that we overcome diversity and we persevere through difficult times. And life lessons she's learned from being a helicopter pilot. First. Fly your aircraft, don't crash it. Don't crash, that's important. <laughs> Navigate, know where you're going and where you want to go, and then communicate. Here's their conversation. Gigi Chow, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you for having me. We are in Hong Kong in your office, and the city is just recovering from the third wave of COVID. How are you and your family doing? We're doing good. We're doing good. Um, third wave of COVID uh, has been just a never-ending series of um, social distancing. In terms of the company, it was business as usual. In terms of um, finding time to um, for family gatherings, they still don't exist as yet because there's still a medium set of social distancing measures in place. We still have a bit of COVID fatigue, I think, from all the measures, but um, otherwise we're doing good. Absolutely. So I want to talk to you about your childhood a little bit. Um, <laughs> so you made international spotlight when your father announced this dowry, marriage dowry of one billion Hong Kong dollars to any man who would marry you. And we are going to talk about that in a little bit. But actually, um, I know that you came out to your mother at a much earlier age. Do you mind sharing that story with us? Sure. I guess when I, when I was very, very young, I became quite aware that I was attracted to people of the same gender as me, um, the girls. And in my formative years, 
we lived in various places because obviously my 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 mom and my dad never married and so um, I was kind of shuttled in between various homes my dad's home which was very magnificent glorious mansion and my mom was um, was an actress at the time so we lived very close to um, the recording studios and the uh, TV studios uh, on Broadcast Drive in Hong Kong. And so it was a very, it's full of experiences of every color and lots of people that I meet in my childhood that um, supposedly I, I know now who are very famous people. <laughs> so I guess um, uh, there was some time I, uh, when I was six, my mom remarried and um, moved with uh, her then-husband, uh, my stepfather, to Atlantic City. Mm. And um, I was uh, quite, already quite, um, I was acutely aware then that I was attracted to women. And um, I had some, you know, cousins and siblings, and I shared with them that, you know, I had these feelings, and they sh certainly didn't know how to handle it. <laughs> And uh, when I came back to Hong Kong in my teens, um, you know, that was the age when you started dating um, and exploring your sexuality. So I had, I had a girlfriend at the time and, and I told my mom then that um, I was attracted to, to, to this girl and uh, she didn't take it very well. <laughs> sure. And uh, she also informed my dad, my dad at that time and he also didn't take it very well. So it's taken a long time, I guess, for them to really come full circle and uh, and uh, allow me to be the person that I, I choose to be, I guess. You've kept a relatively low profile until that marriage bounty, so to speak. And then obviously you wrote a very public letter to your father um, titled, Dear Daddy, You Must Accept I Am a Lesbian. Have they come around now? Fully? Yes, they have. Well. I think what's my, your relationship with him like now? My relationship with my mom has always been close. I think growing up, she leaned on me a lot to find um, security and love and to share her her thoughts and her feelings about life. And so we've always had a close relationship. Um, my father, he's um, more distant as 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 fathers are. Uh, he tends to have that kind of um, aloofness about him that mm. makes him Chairman Chow. But um, over the over the years and through the tumultuous relationships and kind of the probing by the press and the and the kind of ways that you know people try to separate us it's, it's actually made us uh, much closer and we're more comfortable talking about closer and intimate parts of um, our lives um, sharing that with each other so um, at the moment um, we're, we're in a good place you know we're, we're very close and he dines and spends time with my girlfriend and, and I um, on the weekends and I see him every day at the office so it's a treasured relationship so your mother is a second-generation immigrant from Shanghai, and I know she had a very humble beginning in Hong Kong. It was not easy. I knew she became famous, but you know when she first arrived, it was not it was not a very easy start for her. And your father, I, from what I, what I understand, he was frequently featured in the tabloids, and you know a maverick, you know a tycoon in Hong Kong. So it must have been a pretty unusual childhood for you. So how did that impact you growing up? I grew up in the early 80s in Hong Kong 
and uh, I remember my dad um, having lots of social kind of appointments every evening. Uh, he had this kind of very flamboyant gold Rolls Royce at the time. Yes. And um, sort of um, elders from the building community now would come back and tell me today that, oh, you know, your father worked in the, um, what was called the BO then, or the buildings department now, but he rode a, a Rolls Royce to work <laughs> at a government department. And everyone kind of secretly laughed, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> laughed at him for that. But, um, you know, those were the days, you know, when um, Hong Kong was really party town for all types of people, for expats and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the English and uh, people of, all over the world. And, you know, Hong Kong was really happening. And every night uh, I would sit in the rolls and uh, wait for my father to get off work and, uh, you know, ride with him to these various entertainment venues. And uh, I was basically brought up by my driver (laughs) and my, of course, uh, you know, nanny. But riding in the rolls, I think, was was kind of a a definitive experience for me because big parts of Hong Kong were still quite poor at the time. Mm. And we would drive past parts of Hong Kong and people would literally just stop whatever they were doing and kind of stare at us and, you know, watch the car go past their eyes followed us until we were out of sight. I actually found that very uncomfortable. And I I became acutely aware of the the social inequalities um, that I was experiencing. And um, and I became imbued with a a deep sense of responsibility Mm. um, that there are these inequalities in place and I had a, a responsibility to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Hence your charity right now, and obviously not to ignore the fact that Hong Kong has one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world. And yeah, well, not just Hong Kong. I mean, the whole world's become a, a very interconnected place, and with unfortunately with things like technology, you know, it's liberated communications for everybody. But it's we've also become very aware of how wealth is in fact distributed and how mm. some people can can have lots of it and some people find it very difficult just to, you know, scrape by. So I think with technology and, and certainly with COVID, large inequalities exist and, and it's become quite a serious problem, I think, for the human race to, to tackle. Definitely. I want to pivot to your activism a little bit now. Okay. You know, some straight people have this don't ask, don't tell attitude towards the LGBT community, but you want them to do more. You want them to become the allies of the gay people. So what can they do? Well, first of all, let's ask the question why they should be allies. Because, um, you know, a lot of people, people like uh, the previous generation, people like my mom, even though they've taken decades to accept somebody for who they are, their, their identity, they sort of adopt the attitude, okay, yes, well, I don't mind that you're homosexual, but please don't kind of flaunt, flaunt it. it in front of me and don't, don't do things that make me uncomfortable. Um, but I, I actually think that's just part of the process of really realizing that um, full acceptance and full celebration of one's identity. We we shouldn't be embarrassed or 
feel such things to be inappropriate, I think. Um, the full celebration of inclusivity and diversity of the human race should include, um, you know, celebration of gender and gender identities. Mm -hmm. So, especially in this day and age, I think, you know, coming out is, uh, is an action that we should do every day, you know, with, you know, normal people on the street and um, just people we come across every day. Um, but also the, the realization that whether you're straight, whether you're Chinese or white or um, brown or black, uh, we're all minorities in some way mm. or another in our lives. And if we don't stick up for each other, if we don't stick up for one another in ways that we already understand, then it's very difficult for anybody to stick up for anybody because I, I think that's what human beings should do. We're social beings and we have solidarity for each other. And I think the triumph of um, the human race is that we overcome diversity and we persevere through difficult times. And it is especially important now that we um, find opportunity to find camaraderie and stick up for minorities in a way that um, challenges really situations um, that we, we, we come across every day. That's very poignant. Homosexuality was decriminalized in Hong Kong in 1991, which if you really think about it, it hasn't actually been that Not long. Not that long ago. Exactly. And well, same-sex marriage is still illegal. Are you optimistic about Hong Kong one day achieving same-sex marriage? And what are the hurdles for this legislation to pass? I wouldn't call it illegal. I would say that um, same-sex marriage is still not recognized. In it's Hong not recognized, Kong. yes. Yeah, but um, it's not illegal in the sense that there are some protections for same-sex couples that were uh, that have been married abroad in a um, recognized and um, a legal way in, in other jurisdictions. And coming back to Hong Kong, there are certain protections in place. So, for example, now you can jointly file tax returns. Yes. You can um, just very recently on Friday, it was ruled that uh, you have inher inheritance rights for intestacy and so on. So we're still waiting for the, the amendment to the law there. But um, in some ways, there are some protections. So, so it's not a matter of, oh, we can't get married and we'll be arrested. No, but yep. um, it's it's a matter of we don't have the option to get married in Hong Kong if uh, myself and my partner would like to do that. Mm -hmm. So I am very optimistic because we're very clear in our strategy on how to move the whole campaign forward and uh, how to move the needle of um, hearts and minds and how to get more people understanding what the movement is about. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right in saying it's not just a, a civil society movement. There are other um, parts of the equation that are very important. And uh, for us, I think the, the courtroom is uh, as an important battleground for, for um, rights of minorities. Can same-sex marriage enhance a city culturally, socially, and economically? I think we can. I mean, if we look at the statistics from um, other places, for example, the, the Netherlands, that's really recognized same-sex relationships and provided legal recognition for it for over 30 years. 
um, it's really a non-issue. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it, it, there's nothing that takes away from the rights of straight people. Yes. But at the same time, it really enhances the sense of diversity and inclusivity, and especially for young people. I think um, you know. We yes. are um, uh, a population of, of young people and a lot of people, when they're young, we, we certainly struggle with things Your like identity. identity, sexual orientation, or understanding ourselves, and especially nowadays, what are we to do with our futures? Yeah. Um, and it's something about having equal rights, something about seeing that the society is equal really gives us hope mm -hmm. for what the future holds and it actually provides us impetus to build a better world and it gets rid of, it casts away a lot of the defeatism and the, and the hopelessness that we feel when we are overwhelmed by the enormity of, of you know, the structures and, and um, the shackles of tradition. I think um, what we want is to provide that breath of fresh air, provide that hope for young people. And I think that's precisely what marriage equality offers. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Have you ever had young people coming up to you telling telling you about their coming out experience or how, you know, for example, maybe they saw you as an example and they're like, oh, you know, I saw, you know, you did it. So I forgot I could do it, too. So I came out to my parents. Yeah, I I mean, that's one of the reasons uh, we'll talk about this in a moment. That's one of the reasons I, I created the voice out app is because so many people would send me messages kind of in the wee hours of the night and say, oh, I'm so nervous. I'm planning on coming out to my mom, you know, tonight, gee, please give me strength. And I said, there's nothing to, nothing to give. You are your own complete uh, human being and you can handle everything life throws at you. Just go for it. And, mm. and I am, I guess, honored that some of my humble words sometimes do offer some uh, support and strength to people that um, otherwise feel isolated or lonely and I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored if my own trials and tribulations and my own experience has given people some inspiration for what their lives could hold. Has the attitude towards the LGBT community in Hong Kong changed in the past two decades for example? I think it certainly has changed uh, whether it's changed enough to wipe out discrimination remains to be seen. What is the kind of discrimination that the community faces in Hong Kong? Is it, is it subtle? Is it very overt? What, what kind of discrimination do the LGBT community face? I think, of course, it's not just the LGBTI community. Um, it's a, a broad swath of people. But um, more specifically, I think it's the um, uh, conservative attitudes, which is um, 
you know, starts from the education of, of our young and a lot of um, government civil service and a lot of people in power now were educated in these very kind of conservative attitudes um, in their own upbringing. So mm -hmm. um, especially in our colonial past, you know, we were told just to keep our heads down, you know, keep working, don't look up and, you know, you'll make it. And I think it's worked definitely for people in their 50s and 60s. Uh, maybe it's worked for me as well. But I think for the younger people, you know, times are tumultuous and they are just unpredictable mm -hmm. and um, this kind of order does not work for them anymore and they want something more from their lives other than just keeping their head down and waiting for things to happen mm -hmm. and I think that has been the struggle. Say if we're still a long way from same-sex marriage in Hong Kong, what can the private sector, the business world, your world, what can the private sector do to help? I certainly think that we can do a lot, especially now we all see the trend that, you know, governments tend to easily be incapacitated by public opinion. And, um, you know, when you try to force things through, you get a backlash. Mm. So I think business people, now that, you know, we wield more and more power, we have more and more resources mm -hmm. at our fingertips, we certainly have a responsibility, if not for the community than at least towards our own staff and our mm -hmm. own um, human uh, resources to give them a sense of belonging, to allow them to bring their full selves to work and to give them um, equal opportunity uh, in their workplace. Come to think of it, you know, I think if you think about openly gay business leaders on a global level, I, I know I can think of Qantas CEO, um, mm -hmm. the Dow Chemical CEO who are yeah. openly gay, but they're both men. Um, and Tim Cook. Tim Cook. Yeah. Yes, very prominent. <laughs> very prominent business figure. But, you know, I actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I can't really think of any prominent female leaders who are openly gay. And is it, do you think it's because, you know, the business world doesn't really have like a very inclusive, provide an inclusive environment for, for gay women? I, I think the path for women, not just um, out and gay women, but um, women in general, has been a leaky leaky pipe into the boardroom. Yeah. And a lot of that is to do with our physiology. You know, we have children at some point. You know, we have a, a, ticking, a ticking time, <laughs> um, limited time to do that. And, uh, you know, people take time off and they look after children and then it, they find it very difficult to get back into the same kind of trajectory towards yes. the boardroom. And that that is a problem. Um, but unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I think we're, we're, we're in the beginning stages of seeing this transformation and seeing more women take uh, positions of power. And, you know, just recently, I think, um, Citibank. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so we're very, we're encouraged by achievements like that, but there needs to be more. Did you have a mentor in life who guided you through through this all? I think I don't have one specific mentor, but I've definitely had, I've certainly been very lucky that um, every sector or every learning opportunity, um, I've had people that wanted to teach me and I was keen to learn and keen to absorb like a sponge everything that they care to tell me. Mm -hmm. um, of course, my, my parents um, growing up, um, I've always said that um, it takes three generations to, to make a feminist. 
So in some ways, you know, my, my grandmother on my father's side, you know, was just this amazing lady that went to law school in the early 1900s when most women still had bound feet. Wow. Yes. So she was just certainly a very early kind of source of inspiration when I was growing up. Wow. Uh, and of course, my mom, um, just... A very badass woman. <laughs> yeah, you said it. Yeah. And then it kind of really gave me permission and paved the way for me to trailblaze and do what I thought I wanted to do rather than what was deemed correct or appropriate um, in society. And so in my flying, in my helicopter flying, I had a, a good mentor called John Lee that was kind of like a master Yoda of, uh, of pilots that would you know teach me these lessons. Gigi, flying is like life. You have to observe everything. <laughs> it's like kind of these statements which I... I was going to ask you about your helicopter flying. You're a very good pi you're an avid <laughs> pilot. Yeah. And well, you used to shuttle your dad too. That's right. And it's a, it's a very useful experience because it really teaches you to, to multitask, to communicate succinctly and clearly. And I always... Um, and to be able to operate under stress. Exactly, under stress. <laughs> and um, I think the, the slogan goes something like um, aviate navigate communicate so mm. first fly your aircraft don't crash it don't crash. that's important <laughs> navigate know where you're going and where you want to go and then communicate to air traffic control and tell them what your intentions are so in times of kind of stress or chaos i actually use that sort of motto that to is, get me through that is fantastic that's amazing that is really fantastic <laughs> i'll tell you i'm a terrible driver myself like on land oh I so am even... i actually oh, oh, I'm, okay, I'm a terrible okay. driver too. Maybe there's less traffic in the air maybe that's why yes yeah it's easier <laughs> let me ask you this you know for people who for the younger generation who feel a little bit depressed defeated do you have any advice for them let's be honest uh it's only natural that in this day and age to feel a little bit defeated yes and um as, as Jack Ma said, I think uh, the year 2020 is just one of those years that you want to get through and survive, whether it's for your company, for yourself. And I know a lot of young people that, you know, they have no income. They've had no income for the past six months. And, um, you know, how, they, how they'll make it through is still a question. Mm -hmm. But um, there is hope. I think, you know, if you are willing to innovate and you're willing to go the extra mile, I still think that there is an edge available to you. And, you know, uh, with technology, with, uh, you know, so much entertainment at your fingertips in your phone, on your laptop, it's easy for us to become just complacent and just kind of numb ourselves and, and uh, see the time go by. But there's also available in our fingertips kind of amazing education opportunities and you can really get ahead in so much knowledge and i'm, I'm inspired by uh, my auntie my auntie mary who um actually spends she has this very very tight schedule where she spends i think it was something like three hours on youtube learning different <laughs> things be it wow. kind of stock speculation or whatever or listening to KOLs and influences and she's she's in her uh, late 70s so learning never See, stops you gotta um, stay motivated that's yeah. right and uh, you know it might not happen today it might not happen you know 12 hours from now but 
all the all, all the knowledge and all the planning that you accumulated, it will come into action at some point in your life. Hong Kong has gone through a pretty tough year. You know, first the civil unrest, then COVID. I know your organization, the Faith and Love Foundation, has been giving out food, hygiene supplies to the elderly and the low-income and mooncakes. Mooncakes. <laughs> However, that is. A drop in the ocean. Yes, That's not enough. Definitely. So, on a policy level, what does what do you think the government needs to do to help ensure that the most vulnerable communities are protected in these times? I really don't think that、um, what we're doing in terms of giving giving out supplies and giving out mooncakes, you know, the the, the you know three hundred calories in 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 a in a two thousand per day requirement is、um, is the point.、Uh, the point isn't. The tea, or the rice, or the, or the actual item. The point is human connection. Yes. And so I think it's so important to just rekindle that, especially with all this social distancing that you know we've been plagued with in the past six months. It's so difficult to just see another person eye to eye and have a conversation with them face to face,、mm-hmm. and you know. Maybe not shake hands, maybe not hug just yet, but at least kind of be in the same space as, as each other, and tell them with vulnerability that we care for them, and we see the struggles that you're going through. We see how you know you have no space, and your flat has no windows, and it's just a small sized. You know, bunk bed that you know a family of three have to struggle through, and everything is this tiny space. And we might not be able to help you solve these problems、mm-hmm. immediately, but we care. Showing compassion and empathy. Yes, and we care. And and a lot of young people, volunteers that volunteer at our foundation, they are angered. I think by a lot of what they see,、mm-hmm. and they want to garner support, and they want to keep communicating, and they want to let more people know that you know there are these problems and issues in the in in society that require our efforts, our you know brains to to solve these problems. And to be honest, you know the government can't solve it. On their own, for all the problems that they have, they do what they can. Yeah, I think. The, But it's down to the citizens for us. That's to right. I think the, the the problems are of such an enormity that we need more solidarity. We need more people that exercise your own civil duties to、mm. do whatever you can. That's great. I have one last question because of the national security law. You know, there are a lot of huge international businesses that are voicing concerns. Over Hong Kong's viability as a global financial center, what do you think the future holds for Hong Kong? Well, being a,、um, in some ways, a third generation immigrant to Hong Kong, <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, I am definitely、um, optimistic. Even though you know some might say、um, rights and freedoms are less or perceived to be less than before. Um, but certainly, you know, the world is changing very rapidly,、mm-hmm. and it's really up to us to make it meaningful and、um, make our lives meaningful. And I, I still think Hong Kong has so much to offer, so much to.、Um, it still holds so much、uh, resources, abundance, and talent. If only we can really harness it. I mean, of course, we're always compared. 
to, to Singapore. <laughs> um, and I, but I think you know the situations of Singapore is, is so much different. It's so different from what, what we uh, have in Hong Kong in terms of culture, in terms of um, talent, in terms of just geographic um, importance. Yes. Yeah. So I'm optimistic, of course. Not just us. I think the whole world, from the Middle East, the U.S. to Europe, um, we all have to learn how to get along with each other. Yes. <laughs> and I think, of course, social media has played a, an immense role in, you know, fanning a lot of the flames of discord. We just have to rise above it and find a way to get along. Absolutely. Ending the interview on a high note. Yeah, <laughs> as always, I hope. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gigi. Thank you for having me. That was Chungnan Holdings Executive Vice Chairman Gigi Chow speaking to my colleague Yajo San. I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. You can download Gigi Chow's Voice Out app at www.voiceoutapp.hk. And remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Yajo Sun, Chloe Lowe, and Jordan Gasparay. I'm Malika Kapoor. I'll be back next week. Till then, stay well, stay safe, and thank you for listening. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap. Top researcher Dr. Fei Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com/slash TechSF.